When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Truth and Movies, Cruise Control. Today, Panic in Detroit, Catherine Bigelow's hair-trigger tale of the 1967 riots and your worst nightmare, Will Poulter with a gun. Armless fun in Logan Lucky, Soderbergh's slick hick flick, unpicked. And American May, Cruise and Lyman's blow-by-blow account of the CIA pilot who put the Contra in contraband and the Charlie in half the eastern seaboard. Plus Film Club from Lyman to Limey as we get your thoughts on Soderbergh's 1999 tale of a tea leaf with something brewing. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. On board the Good Ship Truth and Movies this week, we have Manuela Lazic. Hello. Hi, Manuela. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? That's great news. Your face is currently adorning billboards all over East London. (laughs) It's yeah, that's the other life I lead. Right, it's nice yes. to have you in our ears as well. Oh, thank you. Great, Adam Woodward's here. <laughs> Hello, how are you, Adam? Uh, good, yeah. You've uh, been surfing suitably refreshed from yeah. my staycation in Cornwall. Yeah, nice, excellent. You visited a seal sanctuary. I did, yeah. And we're talking about a seal today. I, aren't can, we? I could feel the link coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's later on, though. Oh, we had an email here. This is from John Mears. By the way, if you'd like to get in touch, listener, the email address is truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or you can get us on Twitter at LWLies or there's the Facebook page. Anyway, John Mears says, Misery and Carrie are great films because we were talking about Misery last week. Mm-hmm. The Shining, though, says John, is streaks ahead. Yes, Stephen King didn't like it and made a terrible TV movie with a story closer to the original book. But having the source material tinkered with by Kubrick created a superb film. Wonderful performances by all the cast. Terrifying, slow-building plot. Uh, plus, let's not forget how good The Running Man is. Ooh, tails off badly at the end there, John. Is it just me? I actually think The Shining is wildly overrated. No, I'm with you there. I mean, I, I like it. Mm. I think it's good. I don't think it's anywhere near Kubrick's best. Mm. Uh, what don't you like about it? I went to a screening of it about three or four years ago. Uh, down in Brighton, they they managed to get over an, an original American theatrical cut, which had about like twenty minutes more wow. footage on it. So it was like a really long version of the film, and yeah, it was just something I don't think beyond Nicholson's performance, which is obviously great. I don't think there's like enough there for me to really, really, like yeah, to oh. really like latch on to. Interesting, Manuela. Where do you stand on this? I I only saw The Shining recently for the first time, and 
you know, obviously I had a lot of expectations. And when I was little, uh, my mom, she always introduced me to really dark films like Carrie or The Science of the Lambs. And I was like way too young for this. But she always told me there's one film I don't want you to see until you're big and it's The Shining. I was like, okay. Because it wasn't but, very good. Was that all? No, because it was so scary. <laughs> oh, right. And so I watched it and I was really surprised because I found myself really terrified, but also just laughing a lot. It's like a really, really dark comedy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's my favorite Kubrick, but I think it's a masterpiece still. Like, right. I just think it's so masterful in everything it does. It does tread a dangerous line between horror and, and, and humor. And, yeah. you know, certainly the Here's Johnny mm. uh, My favorite scene. thing is when um, he has the bat and he says, uh, no, when she has the bat and he says, stop swinging the bat. And I just find that's so funny. I know it's horrible because she's scared, but I just, I think it's really good comedy. All right. I mean, I personally think it's an amazing film. Visually, it's extraordinary. There's all sorts of things that have become iconic uh, from it. You know, the... The tricycle, the twins, the all work and no play, the, mm. the barman, all that stuff. It's it just the end descends into. Oh, I love the end. You oh, like the ending? So stupid. That kind of hide great. and seek in the maze for me. It just loses it. All the pent up tension is, is lost at that point. Great final shot though. Yeah. What's the final shot? Well, it's the oh. the sort of slow pan in on the picture and that. And oh, the, yeah. right. Yeah. Also, before we actually get started, we've got a lot to get through this week. There's some big movies being released. We should uh, just flag up again that Sunday the 17th of September, if you're not busy and fancy a trip down to King's Place in sunny London town, you could join us at the London Podcast Festival. It's Truth and Movies Live. We're on at a crowd-pleasing 9.30pm on the Sunday evening. You can get tickets for our show from the King's Place London Podcast Festival website. Hope to see you there. Right now, though, let's have some drums and then we'll talk about the first of today's films, Detroit. Yep, Detroit. Catherine Bigelow's film set amongst the chaos of the Detroit riots of 1967, which saw 7,000 arrests and 43 people dying. And this film all about what happens when police and National Guard enter a crowded motel in search of a sniper. This the moment when the policeman played by Will Poulter begins his interrogation. Now let's not be stupid in this situation. We still have a crime scene here and you're all suspects. Each and every one of you. Don't look at me, turn around, face the wall. Was Carl the one doing the shooting? Huh? Somebody better start getting honest with me. Hey! I want that gun! We looked around, we didn't find a gun. Doesn't mean it's not here. Go find it. You too! I got nothing against you people. But you need to tell me where the gun is. You need to tell me who was doing the shooting. I'm only gonna ask so many times. Who did the shooting? We don't know. All right, Manuela, you didn't sleep after seeing this film. Well, yeah, I... I mean, obviously the film is very difficult to watch, but then I also couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about what I think of this movie. I've been ruminating it on it for so long and I've talked to a lot of people who saw it and I'm still not quite sure but mm. you know I have my own theories and my own point of view and I've heard very different opinions on this movie so I understand that it's going to be a tricky one for people to talk about well, one of the um, issues is that the storyline is 
something that's still very, very actual. The whole issue of Black Lives Matter yeah. is something that clearly goes back yeah, I think right it, through this and, and way beyond this. And that's something that the film sets out very neatly at the start, the whole mm. historical and economic context of, of what yeah. led to the riots and the whole context of, of the unrest. Yeah, it starts with like um, a series of computer animated panels that were selected from uh, painter Jacob Lawrence's migration series that he painted in 1940 and 1941, and it's really beautiful. But I do think that uh, it's a bit of a quick uh, summary of a really big problem. Mm. But then I think Bigger's point was to focus on the specific event and then to like make it as representative of a you know the bigger issue of racism. And now like my main issue with the film is that you know we could think that it's timely because obviously violence against black people is still very much happening and it's terrible and you know we have this insane president in America who's not going to help with this. But um, on another level, I've seen people and I kind of agree with them uh, saying that in the age of you know social media where we can see actual real people getting shot and people you know filming what happens and putting on social media maybe we don't need a dramatization of this because we know how it it is you know like we we see black bodies being traumatized all the time so right. maybe having a dramatization of it on screen for people to watch is a bit of a not necessary necessary it's interesting i i would think that it's quite easy because we see these images um on social media, on news, it's quite easy for people almost to compartmentalise them or move mm. past them, and they don't really even, a lot of people, unfortunately, emotionally connect with them. And what yeah. I think this film does, did for me remarkably well, is in some way give you some glimmer of sense of what it would be like to live under those conditions. Yeah, I agree very much with this, and that's that's why I think, you know, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence on this one, but I agree that the, the fact that this movie is very spectacular in its violence... I don't think it's a bad thing. Hmm. I know that some people are saying that this is exploitative, but I think, you know, it's not because you show an, a real violent event that you are disrespecting it. Hmm. Often it means that you're just trying to make the viewer feel just how horrible it was. And so I think that movie really does that really well. It's horrible. I had like one of the worst times ever watching this movie. So, you know, at the same time, I think it's a worthwhile effort and I'm glad like I don't want it I don't want this movie about this horrible event to be palatable like mm. it's it's not supposed to be a good time then again I don't know if I would recommend it to everybody and I think Bigelow is very brave to take on this story because she said that she was offered this uh, story to tell and she took it on because she felt like it was a story worth telling and now obviously she's getting a lot of heat because of the way she portrayed it and people are saying that she's exploiting the story I tend to disagree. I think for the most part, it's kind of like a docudrama where she's just presenting how horrible the events is and are. And uh, and that's obviously very hard to watch, but it's the point. Hmm. She had a lovely interview in the, the Guardian last week where she says, is this my story to tell? Am I the, the person mm. who should be telling this story? Absolutely not. But it's been there for 50 years in the shadows and nobody mm. else has told it. So mm. uh, from that point of view, it's I, I found it tremendous that, that she has taken this on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is a hair-trigger film. It feels like it could go off any time, mm -hmm. just a wrong word, any time for two hours or so, the whole thing can explode. Yeah, I mean, it's almost uh, unbearably tense in the centrepiece action scene, which takes over the film, really, I guess. I mean, the the film initially begins after that opening, which I, I had a little bit of a problem with that animated opening, as, as much as it's um, referencing this incredible piece of artwork. I think the idea of condensing... Uh, hundreds of years of, of, of black oppression in yeah. America into that 
bite-sized. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't didn't really satisfy me. But anyway, moving on to the, the opening of the film, it starts off with this amazing, I think, ground-level exploration of the riot as it's kind of unfolding. And I was a little bit disappointed that it, it very quickly curtails that and then focuses in, in on this yeah, Algiers uh, motel incident, which it's based on a, on a real account. And ultimately, I think what she's most interested in and maybe Mark Bowl, uh, the, the screenwriter, is most interested in is looking at that and the, and the corruption that was inherent to it. But mm-hmm. that scene is, well, I guess we can call, call it a, a single scene, right? I mean, mm. it plays out for about 45 minutes mm. or something, but it is a single scene. It is, as I say, unbearably tense and possibly lays it on a bit too thick in terms of uh, not having a lot of nuances to who, who the bad guys are and who the, the good guys are. Although potentially John Boyega's role is, is not yeah. entirely defined. Yeah, possibly. I think, I think he, he's never a bad guy, though. No, no. I mean, his his role in this is slightly more complex, mm. I think. The, the fact that the characters are actually not desperately explored, I mean, the, the exception might be the lead singer of the, mm. the, the soul group, The Dramatics. Mm. But by and large, whereas there is an attempt to give the city and the, and the social unrest some backstory, the, the characters are never given any backstory yeah. at all. I wondered if that's because... For her, it's not the characters or even Krauss, the, the kind of sociopathic mm. policeman who are the issue. It's, it's, it's a racist state. So as, as such, it doesn't matter who the characters are. This is how it plays out. Whichever people you put in there, if you have a society like this, this is what happens. I, I agree with that. I just think at the same time, the film doesn't really tell you anything really about the Detroit riots. Like It doesn't really provide much in the way of political or social context. I mean, I didn't really come away with a sense of you know, the film having broadened my knowledge of that subject. Or that issue. I feel like she just wanted to let the events speak for themselves. Like uh, she didn't want to put her spin on racism. She was just presenting a story and being like, "Look, it speaks for itself. It's horrible and it's absurd." And I think it's also a really difficult story because it's just so damn stupid. But that's because racism is f- stupid. And so you just have these people doing insane stuff, and it's really hard to watch and it's really upsetting. But that's the point. The beginning when it's when it shows how the rights first started. Like it's like oh we just see these people being angry at the police coming over and then leaving and then they just start break like destroying their own city. But I wish the film kind of was about that maybe about like what makes you so desperate yeah. as to want to destroy your own house you know like own shops your own community. That's like the real sadness here. That's the real hypocrisy of the police then to come with tanks and be like, oh, we have to clean things up here. People are crazy. They're not crazy. They're desperate and they want you to pay attention. Hmm. That would have been a great film. Hmm. Well, the riot was a a huge event and this was a pretty huge story within that riot. And I guess there are a lot of ways that you could approach Hmm. trying to tell any of these stories in, in, in two hours or so, a lot of choices you could have made. Not for the first time, as you mentioned, Mark Boyle and, and, and Catherine Bigelow, who've collaborated on this, Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker, have, have run into huge amounts of controversy over the way that they've approached the, the subject matter. I think there's there's a lot of hot takes out there, and, and there's an interesting piece that we've run, actually, where it's not necessarily attacking Bigelow, but it's just stating the fact that she, as a white director, or as a white person does not bring the same perspective as a black filmmaker would. Mm. And I think that is a truthful statement. I don't think you can argue with that. And arguably, she's more interested in in the kind of 
the white system there uh, mm. that, that was sort of so dominant and I guess still is. But you see that so much of of the the police um, corruption and cover ups and them covering their tracks. A lot of the sort of behind the scenes or behind closed doors stuff that was going on, um, which kind of takes you out of the riot itself or the the events around the riot. So I didn't necessarily feel that was particularly interesting. All right, um, she's got such a diverse body of work. Mm. I mean, you would mention you watched Point Break the other day. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was so amazing. <laughs> it's become one of my favorite movies ever immediately. It was crazy. I saw a print uh, at the Prince Charles Cinema. And yeah, I think it's... What I mean, did you I like most all about it? Films, but, well, I think you can tell that it's a female perspective. So the main character is uh, obviously uh, Kenya Reeves and he's a man. But the way he's shot, like you can tell that he's a woman. And it's very playful and it's very liberated and he doesn't really care for realism in some ways. It's very surreal. I like that she's not afraid of making action tough movies, you know, mm. because so many times you have female directors and we're like, oh yeah, they should tell like love stories and like, no, they can make movies about surfers breaking banks. Like, that's great. Falling out of planes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Adam, this yeah. film then. Yes. Detroit. Not an easy watch. No. Intentionally but, so. But would you recommend it? I think it's not necessarily an important film, but one people should probably see, make their own opinions of. I think I would have given this probably a five in anticipation because she is a fascinating director. Mark Boll, her collaborations with him have been very interesting recently. It feels like a very timely film, as you say, and a great cast. So yeah, five for anticipation and I think three for enjoyment and in retrospect. I know it's not a film that you're supposed to enjoy in the moment. Mm. I'd love to say this is a film that uh, I came away wanting to explore further but actually I found myself thinking more about the merits of it being made in the first place as opposed to what the film is actually trying to say Okay, Manuela? I very much agree with Adam I didn't enjoy watching this but I'm glad I didn't but at the same time I wouldn't give it you know, zero enjoyment because I think it's doing interesting things as well as disturbing things as well Like I didn't walk away from it feeling like oh this is something I'm really glad I've seen or I've learned something here. I just felt brutalized and traumatized. I probably wouldn't recommend this to people I love. You wouldn't? No, I would rather have they, they read about the Detroit events. Um, my, my mom herself, she, she said, oh yeah, Detroit, I heard about this movie. I read a book about it. And she was saying how horrible it was. And I said, well, don't watch this movie. Then you, you probably know everything there is to know. And yeah, so... Okay, yeah. I really would recommend it. Yeah. I think it's a really powerful bit of... I mean, it's it's flawed like anything, trying to deal mm. with something this complex and a real-life story as well. It is inherently going to not tick everybody's boxes. And there are undoubted questions about who should be making this and, and what perspective they bring. But I thought it was an extraordinarily powerful bit of filmmaking mm. and it left me utterly shell-shocked for the, the rest of the day. I'd give it falls across the board. We'll move on because next up, we're talking about Doug Lyman's American Made. American Made, uh, a true story-ish concerning Barry Seal, a former TWA pilot who became the delivery guy for the CIA, uh, the Medellin Cartel, and interestingly, Ollie North. Here's the moment when CIA operative Donald Gleason shows Barry Seal, played by Tom Cruise, a rather exciting spy plane. CIA owns this? No, no. Uh, independent aviation consultants. 
IAC. Yeah. You'd run the company, but after hours, you work for us. Takes pictures? The work is covert. Covert. So uh, anyone finds out about it, uh, family, friends, even uh, Lucy. It's Lucy, right? Yeah, that's right. That'd be a problem. Oh, this is legal? If you're doing it for the good guys, yeah. <laughs> Just don't get caught. Indeed. It is a fascinating story, this. What did you make of the film, Adam? Yeah, it's one of those stories that uh, it's almost like unbelievable. You couldn't make it you up. You couldn't make it up. Uh, unbelievable, were not for the fact that it did actually happen. Mm. Um, I, I like it as a sort of character study of this guy who basically, you know when like a monkey pushes a button and gets a dopamine hit and then just keeps pushing that button? He, he's like that monkey. You get the sense that he's not really doing it for, for the cash uh, or, or for any other kind of reason. Um, his motive is just bizarre in this because you think there's so many times where you're screaming at the screen being like, stop what you're doing. Uh, you, How you, are you? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, just because he goes so far, yeah. you've done all you need to do, just kind of walk away. Mm. Uh, and he doesn't. And I, and I think I find that really fascinating. I didn't feel the the movie was positing that question, why are you doing this? It almost just breezes past it. That I didn't really get much sense of real-world implications for, for the uh, actions that he was taking. And I think part of the reason for that is Tom Cruise, because it, it's it's Tom Cruise, it's Ethan, whatever his name Ethan is. Ethan Hunt. Ethan Hunt, it's Maverick, and he's doing it all with his, his cheesy grin, and we never really get behind that. See, that, that was, initially I wondered... Is this just because it's Tom Cruise and this is the performance that Tom Cruise gives in mm. this role? Uh, or actually, was this true to the character? Like, is, is this his nature? Is that he doesn't really appreciate um, the kind of bigger picture? And as I say, he is that monkey pr- pressing that button. I mean, that's just my reading because, the, as you say, the film totally brushes over that. It doesn't really offer um, a reasonable motive for him. Um, and, Beyond and yeah, the enormous sums of money. But then he's not really shown to be. Yes, he he kind of That's upgrades problem, his he it? upgrades his home and buys himself a new car and keeps his wife happy and everything else. But yeah, he doesn't really ever seem to be in it for the money. He likes the thrills, I guess. I mean, so initially when he when he is um, introduced as his TWA pilot, he's not introduced as a kind of clean cut all American guy. I mean, he is to an extent, but he's he's at the point where he's he's taken a few bungs and um, he's already smuggling a bit of light narcotics at that point so he's he's clearly like corrupt a corruptible figure mm. um if not fully you know scarface level <laughs> um yeah I, I think the as a character study it's interesting the film around the character is not so interesting mm. like you say it's it's done in a very i found it quite glib actually the, yeah. the way it handles his situation right because the real world implications of what he's doing getting involved in the contras who are trying to overthrow the sandinistas importing massive amounts of drugs into america will the implications of that we don't really get a sense of that beyond the fact that this guy's an amazing pilot who can pull off incredible stunts and bends the rules a bit with a smile. Oh yeah, there's, it's like there's lots of sexy '80s pilot work in this, and and him getting to do, yeah, it's, it's that like Need for Speed thing. It, it felt like a bit of a tired throwback actually to that mm. um, macho character that we're used to seeing in the 80s maybe there's an element there of Cruz doing a sort of self-referential thing but all the stuff around it like the fact that he's doing uh, gun running um, between Central American countries which are at war with each other you mm. don't really get a sense of what's actually happening on the ground there and how his actions are affecting people that's maybe a different film and th- this is obviously just going for a kind of light entertainment thing but 
it. But it's quite a privileged position that, that him and Lyman are taking, essentially, then to just treat this story as, you know, just, just playing it, not for laughs entirely, but as light entertainment. Not, not for laughs, because ultimately, you know, he's not a guy who you should be, like, looking up to or aspiring to or anything like that. He, he's a guy who kind of takes life by the horns and, and I guess, right, yeah, rides that ball for as, as long as he can, I guess. Mm. But at the same time... I don't think he comes across as particularly relatable or likable. Mm. It is an entertaining story at heart, so it's not a dull watch. Oh, no, not at all. I, I had quite a good time watching it. Donald Gleeson's really good. Yeah, he is, yeah. And there are some really nice moments, most of which are in the trailer, to be fair, although there is one moment with Barry and his wife Lucy in the cockpit, which is brilliantly done, involving mm. a, a, a sudden loss of gravity. Yes. Um, but, but by and large, given the who the director is, Doug Lyman... And given the storyline, I was a little bit disappointed. Well, his last film, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, I believe that's his last film, uh, kind of didn't come out of nowhere as such, but was was a bigger hit than maybe people were expecting, um, given that it's a sort of non-franchise, uh, or at the time was a non-franchise big action sci-fi uh, adventure movie. Um, and, and yeah, him and Tom Cruise have formed this interesting sort of partnership now, I think, and, and long met continue. I think it's, it's nice seeing Cruise doing something which is a little bit less... I mean, like, what did we... The last the Cruise film review was The Mummy, so... I'd, I'd much rather him do something like this than The Mummy yeah. or another Mission Impossible film, which, as much as I love Ethan Hunt, I love that, that character in those films, it does feel like they've reached at the end of the, ro- the road with those ones. Okay. Funnily enough, Ollie North and the Iran-Contra mm. scandal involved in this, Doug Lyman's father was Arthur L. Lyman, and he was the chief counsel for the Senate investigation into that affair <laughs> and actually questioned Ollie North during the public hearings. Oh, well, there you go. It's meant, meant to be then. Uh, Manuela, you haven't seen this film, which is why. No. Are you looking forward to it? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, really like, I really like Tom Cruise. Um, yeah. I like Tom Cruise in Planes. So yeah. maybe, yeah. Maybe I think I you'll mostly it. have a good time. Okay. Yeah, I mean, certainly the first hour or so until maybe it just starts right. to get a little bit routine for me. Yeah. Oh, it's two hours long. Oh. Yeah. There's a, very, there's a very good bit where there's a very good bit where he's in this sort of light aircraft and he's got to take off on like a very short runway. And that's the sort of scene where only someone like Tom Cruise could could do that scene in the way that he does and make it so funny, mm. I think. Nice. Yeah, he's very good in it. I mean... My scores on this would be four for anticipation because the trailer looked fantastic. Three probably at the time because it just started to wear a little bit thin and, and maybe two in retrospect. Adam? I think I'll go three, three, two. Okay. That's a sort of a high two. Okay. Because yeah, I don't think it does anything two. particularly bad or wrong. You know, it's competently made. Also, it's not the kind of film that you see for the post score. It's the it's, exactly. it's the three at the time. It's but it's I a mean, perfectly I, I, decent. if I if I uh, never see this film again, I won't be too sad about that. Okay, there you go, listeners. Up next, we got a film that has been wowing the critics. Also coming out this week in the UK, and I suspect worldwide, it is the new one from Steven Soderbergh, Logan Lucky. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Logan Lucky, two brothers from the famously unlucky Logan family, plot to turn their fortunes around by robbing a NASCAR race in Charlotte, North Carolina. Here's the bit where the brothers meet their explosives expert, Joe Bang, played by Daniel Craig. I got five months to go in here. I should probably lay low a bit before doing a job. This has to happen in five weeks. I am incarcerated. Yeah, we got a plan to get you out. Break me out. Yep. In the middle of the night? No. Afternoon. It's a day job. You're gonna get me out of here in broad daylight, do the job, and then get me back in here before you know what notices. Yep. You Logan's mustn't be as simple-minded as people say. People, people say that. <laughs> Manuela, yes. so you got a plot and a very convoluted plot to rob a large sum of money involving a great lineup of actors. It sounds a little bit like something Steven Soderbergh's done before this. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the Ocean's trilogy. But um, in a way, it's quite different in its setting and in the type of people it concerns itself with. with. So it's more... In the Oceans trilogy, it was more like high-flying, like really cool, smooth people like George Clooney. And here it's more kind of lower-class people in West Virginia trying to make it. Mm -hmm. So it's quite it's quite different. So that sounds nice, but I, I'm afraid to say I did not like this movie very right, much. This, this has got great reviews. I know. I, I know. don't think I saw a review that wasn't really good for this film. Oh, I saw some. Did you? I'm not alone here. And you're about to, <laughs> you're about to give one of your own. Well, yeah. What I, didn't I, you like about it? I found it quite uh, loose. I found that the story was on paper amazing, mm -hmm. and really, I love a convoluted story with a weird twist and you know, interesting, mysterious people. But I think, as a film, it didn't really work. It felt like it wasn't tight enough. There was a lot of filler 
filler in the sense of you know exposition shots and setting the scene and all that. But at the same time, the characters were not convincing. The, the film was trying to spend time presenting them as real personalities, but I didn't, I didn't buy it. I just didn't buy it. And so mm. in the end, I just didn't really care. And I could follow, but I just was like, why am I watching this? Didn't care. So. Adam, Soderbergh had said previously, because he hadn't made a film in four years, kind of semi-retired from cinema. He was making The Nick, which mm. you're a big fan of. Yeah. He said, I've lost interest in anything that smells important. What, what does that mean about what he's trying to do here? Well, Steven Soderbergh is an interesting uh, one in that he's been making movies for the best part of 30 years now, I think. Really? Yeah, Sex, Lies and Videotape. Obviously, he's he's like the original Sundance kid that came out and, and blew up in the 90s. And his semi-retirement uh, or hiatus now, I guess, as we can call it, is... I think was the result of his growing frustration with the industry and that it's essentially impossible to make uh, a, a movie for grown-ups from an original screenplay that isn't part of like a franchise or isn't a superhero movie, doesn't, isn't full of like endless action and violence and sex. And in fact, this film, I think, has something like three swear words in it and there's none of that stuff that I just mentioned in, in here. Um, so it's, in a way, a bit of a gamble of a film to make I suppose but yeah I think he's just attracted to the, the screenplay by Rebecca Blunt which I think I'm right in saying it's her first ever screenplay whoever she is because there's a lot of suggestion in the states that she doesn't actually that exist that is actually him yeah, yeah I'm intrigued by that uh I think that's like a nice idea, like a nice fantasy that people probably want to... Well, no one's ever seen her or met her. That's, I mean, none of the people have tried to get in touch with her. Right. It's a marketing I, thing. Possibly so. Yeah, yeah. although, although the, <laughs> interestingly, like, I don't know why he would do that if it wasn't a film written by him, because he's made films that he's written the screenplays for before. Right. And he's famously, you know, one of the reasons he, he kind of went on this self-imposed hiatus is that he likes to have creative control, so these days he kind of edits... Um, shoots his own movies I wouldn't be surprised if it was the, him had actually written it but I don't see why he wouldn't have just been open about that initially Maybe it was actually written by Akiva Goldsman and they just didn't want anyone to know he did the last Transformers oh. movie oh, poor, 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 poor Akiva Goldsman Alright, did you like it? This is one of my favourite movies of the year I'm pleased to say um, So sorry Manuela so uh, fine. Why, why did Manuela, and i got to admit me, mm. why did we completely miss the boat on this one? Well I don't know to, to what extent you, you missed the boat. I think Explain actually my brain to me. It, it's interesting that you, you said the stuff with the characters, the kind of expositional stuff was what you didn't like because I thought that was what really made it for me. I think the Oceans movies, they lack that sense of character and purpose and, and motivation and I mean the stuff with Channing Tatum and his daughter, mm. apparently when they were doing test screenings for this film, that was actually one of the, the, the piece of feedback they had was that they needed, he wanted to include more of those scenes and they actually went back and wrote a few more of those scenes right. in and I love that sort of sense of everyday connection and relationship there's a beautiful scene early on where he's talking about he's telling this story about his favorite john denver song mm -hmm. and it's clearly it's a story that we're hearing for the first time but the daughter's heard like a hundred times before um, and she just hangs off every single word and i just love the the little simple moments between the characters producer tom was just mentioning the fact that this is actually the fourth film that we've had of late with john denver in it and the use of it in this film i think is one of the the nicer moments for me of, of the film. Mm. Take Me Home Country Roads is the song in this film. Annie's song turns up in... Uh, in Okja. Is it in Okja? Yeah. And in Alien Covenant? Apparently. And also in uh, Free, Free Fire. Fire. Yeah. 
and not desperately well used, I didn't think, there. But then I wasn't a f- massive fan of Free Fire. Uh, this is the best use of Denver, I think, yeah. this year. Yeah. I quite like Ian Lockjaw. I think it's really funny. And... Mm, but what, what's with all this John Denver revival? <laughs> I don't know. He's having it's a, a nice moment. Song. Yeah, he's having a moment, isn't he? It's a great song. Yeah. I love that start as well. Me for, too. for me, the issue was that when the movie began like that, I thought, we're going to have an actual story told with a bit of heart and soul here. But instead, what we ended up with was a kind of a fluff, a, little, a, a, a caper flick in which he does what he does so well, but he can almost do it in his sleep. We'll have a convoluted cast of characters. They'll do some vaguely hokey stuff. There'll be some comedy twists, but we're laughing with them, not at them too much. And above all, we'll have a plot that is extraordinarily convoluted, as I say, mm. couldn't possibly take place, but everything just falls into place. So there's no tension at the end. There's no great sense of danger. And for a heist film, for a movie which leaves much of the family stuff behind to concern itself with the heist, for there to be a total absence of any feeling of tension or danger about whether the heist is going to come off or not is pretty unforgivable. I think that the heist stuff isn't necessarily the most important thing, though. I mean, the stakes are kind of purposely kept quite low, I think. It's a film which he could have made in his sleep, as you say. I think only someone like Steven Soderbergh could make a film like this um, because it is, I think, quite intentionally loose. The way that the the heist is kind of plotted out and, and put together and the way that ultimately it's revealed how certain things were done towards the end mm. um, yeah but he does that thing he did this in Ocean's 12 as yeah, well. yeah. he goes back and explains the punchline to a joke that you weren't even he, he never really told you in the first place oh I think I think, I think that's <laughs> I think all that stuff's amazing do you think so <laughs> oh yeah yeah I mean it's so simple and yet so difficult at the same time I think to do that in a really cohesive really beautifully straightforward way I just think it's such a wonderfully humane film and this is a um, a setting, I guess, and a, and a group of people who we're not used to seeing that much uh, on screen. And it could have quite easily have been uh, mocking of them. It's a culture which is very different, I guess, to... I mean, America's so, so diverse, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's a culture, that, uh, American culture we're so um, not used to seeing and one which is often mocked. The idea of the kind of slack-jawed, hick-yokel hick type is a bit of a trope in cinema now. Right. And I, I love the way he kind of, not so much subverts it, but just shows it for what it is. And it's such an affectionate portrayal of that culture. And it's yeah, such a singular culture. Kind of cliche a, a bit. Mm-hmm. But it's very Coen Brothers. I mean, people have said this is like the Coen Brothers did Ocean's Eleven. It, it's kind of got a little bit that feel to it, which sounds better than I personally found it. But this <laughs> clearly divides people down the middle. You loved it. Uh, David Jenkins loved it. He gave it five in his review on Little White Lies. Manuela, you and I just got yeah. left behind by it. In the, the We were in a screening yesterday where Steven Soderbergh and, and Adam Driver turned up at the, at the yeah, start, actually. That was great. Said, yeah, that was quite <laughs> exciting. But I, I don't know where you were sitting because my side of the auditorium didn't laugh and the other side of the auditorium really enjoyed it I mean clearly thought it was tremendously humorous there's an extended sequence involving a a kind of riff about Game of Thrones Mm. which kind of underlined to me the fact that this film thinks it's way funnier than it actually is I I didn't find many belly laughs there are some chuckles in there but I don't, I don't know how much I laughed out loud during the film, but I think I had a smile on my face like the whole well, way that's through. Good. You, you know, you know that thing where you're sat in, in in a movie and you just know that you're in the hands of like a really, really bloody good filmmaker. Yeah, it's and, nice and, when that happens. And it doesn't really, for me, it feels like it doesn't happen happen often enough. And when it does, I'm just quite happy to sit there 
knowing I'm in safe hands, I, I'm not really too bothered about where they're taking yeah. me. It's a great feeling that when you sit down and you think, I'm going to enjoy this film. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I haven't had that with all of his films, I've got to say. There's a few from his back catalogue which I don't get on with. And there's some of his more recent ones as well, actually. But this I just think is so... Yeah, so simple, so beautifully realised. And just a, a quick like shout out to Daniel Craig, who right. oh, I was going to actually say we, we, he's the first voice that we hear in that clip earlier um, because it just you wouldn't know it's him basically just from listening oh. to you that. Actually, yeah, you forget you're watching. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's very sad that he's now signed up to do another Bond film. Did because you see in the credits at the end it says, and introducing yeah, yeah. Daniel Craig as Joe Bang. And you're like, oh. As, as much as I, I think he's decent as Bond, and I don't want to get too much into this, but <laughs> watching this, you're like, he's having so much fun making this yeah, movie. He's and a ter- terrific you, when, actor. You, when you watch him in Bond, he's clearly not enjoying it. I know he's getting paid no, a lot no, of money to do it well, yeah, often, but. Well, you hesitated for a bit, you see. Well, yeah. But taking it, on the new one. But do you know what it's like? It's like Barry Seal. He just can't stop pushing. <laughs> he's that monkey pushing a button. He is that monkey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What numbers do you give this, Adam? You're going with David's five? Oh, I'm for fives across the board, yeah. Wow. Uh, uh, f- the first five for the fact that he hasn't made a film in such a long time, and, and I do think he's a, a vastly underappreciated American filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of film I wanted to watch as soon as it had finished again. Really? Yeah. Manuela? I definitely was anticipating this, so five. Yeah, I love him. Uh, for me, Success in Videotape is a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite movies I watch all the time. But uh, enjoyment, I'd say free in retrospect I would say probably like two and a half yeah. I really I, I don't want to watch this again and I it's a shame it's a shame it had all the ingredients yeah I, I'd very much subscribe to your, your numbers there this is very much an Ocean's 12 as opposed to a limey or something like that hey speaking of which well Adam there's something you wanted to add at this point I think I was just going to give a quick shout out to the fact that we've got an interview with uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, going on the website this week I think it'll probably be live on Thursday brilliant um, and yeah it's, it's interesting what he says in it he talks a lot about his frustrations with the industry um, and the fact that he's got this new distribution model which he's sort of using this film as um, a trial for and essentially it involves him selling all the distribution rights ahead of even produ- making the film um and, and essentially get, yeah, getting the funding that way um, and then making it on a pretty small, I mean, I think it would cost something like $30 million, mm. um, which is, yeah, not a lot by today's standards. So um, interestingly, the film, even though it's been critically acclaimed, hasn't done amazingly well in, in the States. I don't think his opening weekend was pretty modest. Um, but what's really interesting is he, he talks about where the film has done well. And so it's about marketing the film to specifically those depicted in the film and those kind of southern states. Apparently, they were some of the lowest attendances they had were in those states. So, uh, yeah, there's there's an interesting yeah, which apparently they really targeted those people and and actually, LA and New York and another kind of bigger city folk they weren't really so worried about. I guess maybe they knew that they were more likely to to turn up because maybe they're more review driven or something, but. Yeah, he did seem a bit disappointed by that, whether it will eventually get word of mouth or whether there's like a suspicion amongst those people that it's a Hollywood film depicting their culture in, in a Although negative he light. Is from yeah, he is, he is sort way. of from that, from that region. So, Well, when he turned up prior to the, the screening that we saw Manuela, he was yeah. sort of almost pinning his hopes on a good reception in, in the UK because we care more about movies. Yeah, he said uh, he looked quite... Uh anxious but in a good way and quite happy to be there and he said uh, oh, it's always nice to come to the UK because you guys really have a passion for movies that is a bit uh, getting lost in the US mm. and I was like oh 
well, always uh, he always has something to say about the industry and the audiences and stuff. Absolutely. Well, a lot of his films don't do that well at the time, but it's still critically hailed. Mm. And we'll be looking at a fine example of that in our film club right after this. Yes, it's the Little White Lies Film Club. Every week we go back and look at something and ask you to do the same. And generally we try and tie it in with either a, a listener suggestion or something that's just come out. In this case, Logan Lucky, Steven Soderbergh. And we picked one of the classics from his back catalogue, 1999's The Limey, starring Terence Stamp. When I was in prison, second time, uh, no, tell a lie, third stretch. But there was this screw what really had it in for me and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I sees him in Ola Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his f***ing neck. Wallop. But I left him. I could have nobbled him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This burke on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end, because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear and you can act accordingly. Manuel, for anyone who didn't catch up with this film, what happens in it? So it's quite a simple story. It's a, an English criminal played by Stamp who travels to Los Angeles to investigate the death of his daughter. And the rather shady record producer she's been hanging around played by Peter Fonda. Mm, excellent casting choice to have him play a record producer from the 60s who's kind of disillusioned about the 60s. It's beautiful. There's a lot of interesting choices that Soderbergh made back in 99 when he, when he put this film together. The editing, which is very singular, jumping from... Mm. from one time frame to another, even in the midst of a sentence. It's the best editing I've seen in so long, and I was completely blown away. Like I just couldn't believe it. Well, I just wanted to read out a comment from uh, Hemin Shafe, who says, first time I'd ever noticed how important editing can be to the film experience, mm. which is interesting because that, yeah, that clip that we've just listened to, you, when you hear that monologue and when you actually see it, it's, it's sort of cut up quite a lot. They must have taken, I don't know how many takes they did of it, but it must have been like 10 or 12 takes or something of him doing it. Um, it sounds like a, a single piece there, but actually the way it's edited and, and framed is really fascinating, I think. Um, even though I saw this film for the first time uh, for this very film club, um, yeah, so it was a really amazing piece of editing that, yeah, I wish I'd have seen it earlier, actually. The, the very opening scene is just a... Uh it's really hard to describe because it, it mixed, mixes together different timelines, different people, different things that, have, that are happening. And it's all kind of in silence. Mm. And it's so sad. And it's kind of about grief and the mourning of Terence Stamp for his daughter. And it's just the most amazing editing I've ever seen. Everybody, please watch this movie. It's life-changing. Well, lots of people have, of course, watched it. Scott McKay, for example, mesmerising performance from Terence Stamp. Brilliant use of vintage footage, one of my all-time favourite movies. The vintage footage is another interesting choice from Soderbergh. The scenes from uh, Ken Loach's debut movie, uh, Poor Cow, made back in 1967, which features a young Terence Stamp and a very poignant set 
within the context of this film of a man at the other end of his kind of story arc. Mm. Uh, he didn't have the easiest time getting hold of that footage, though. Yeah, the, the, the sort of story goes that Steven Soderbergh approached Warner Brothers, who had the rights for Poor Cow, and uh, re- requested its use, and they basically said, no, you can't have it. And uh, his response was, well, I'm never going to make a film for you ever again. And the uh, I think the executive soon... Uh, yeah, re- retreated on that and said, okay, do what you want with it. What else have we got, Manuela, from our bulging post bag? So we have William Gibson. Uh, the cy- William Gibson. Yes, himself, the cyberpunk author and writer of one of the many early iterations of Alien 3. Hmm. Uh, he I'm says, sure that's what he bought on his gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. I mean, uh, he says, unforgettable, third act is less than perfect, but the first two are sheer genius. Wait, so this is William Gibson, that William Gibson who's writing into. Us or to the, to Little White Lies Twitter feed? Yeah. Blimey. All right. <laughs> There's also Friday Jones, who says, I worked on the film poster as a young designer in LA. The directive was Saul Bass, and I've had a love affair with him ever since. Right. And it is a really beautiful poster. It's lovely, isn't it? Well, there's two that I've seen, and they're both gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. Who's Saul Bass, then? I feel like I should know that name. He's like the most famous movie poster. He did all of like Hitchcock's. Oh, right. Yeah, so like yeah. the Vertigo poster and stuff. Well, one of the, these is very Hitchcock-y. Yeah. Uh, Ian Gilchrist here says, love it, makes a great double bill with Point Blank, uh, which is an, another really cracking neo-noir, one of my favourites. Uh, he also says, I saw Stamp, uh, Tenant Stamp near the BFI some years ago uh, and wanted to shout across the street at him, Tell them I'm effing coming. <laughs> Jimmy, Happy Boy Price, says, I had the chance to meet Stan once. He lit up, not a cigarette, I presume, he lit up when I mentioned how much I loved the limey. His best film, question mark. Oh, he's, he's cra- it's interesting, though, because the way that Soderbergh has him in, in this movie, a lot of it is, it's almost like cartoony Cockney. Mm. It's almost like he deliberately asks him to overact, and, and especially in the early scenes. And I wondered, I wondered what Soderbergh's trying to do there. And also, what Soderbergh's... Is this character where Basher in the Oceans films comes from? Because Soderbergh obviously takes so much delight in having him say things like tea leaf, china plate, Barney rubble, butcher's hook. Well, apparently, he initially um, had Michael Caine in mind for the role. For, for this role? For this role, oh, yeah. Really? Um, which is surprising given the sort of poor cow stuff that there is as well. And mm. you'd think he, he'd written it with Terence Stamp in mind. But I think if, if it had been Caine, it would have almost been like too much of a, a nod to the Cockney um, archetype, which Caine obviously was so famous for. Mm. But yeah, I think this is probably Stamp's best performance. It's um, really good here. Yeah. I really like him in uh, Fiorema. Uh, mm-hmm. Teorema, the Pasolini movie, but it's very different. It's more, much more subdued performance where, style. Where would you rank this among Soderbergh's films? I watched it for the first time for this podcast as well, but I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's not my favorite. My favorite is still uh, Sex, Size and Videotape, as I said, but it's really up there, probably second or third. He's, he's there, made some five. great films over there. I mean, Traffic, that was a fantastic film. Yeah, Out of Sight, which he did. Out of Sight, yeah. Yes. The Lime is one of those, it's always been uh, on my long list of things to see and for, for whatever reason, I've never got round to it and I'm now kicking myself because just on first viewing, I think it might be one of my like favourite films ever. I mean, really? it, it ticks so many boxes for me and it's also just an amazing deconstruction of certain tropes and especially like the kind of masculinity um, that filmmakers since have, have yeah. unpicked and to a lesser extent I think I think it's easily as good as anything like Paul Thomas Anderson was making in the 90s and yeah it's just got this amazing tonal quality to it that you don't see anymore I mean you don't you do not see films like this being made anymore no. quite simply 
Grendel says, Aristotelian movement of spirit was perfect. Main characters, reversal recognition, sublime and subtle. <laughs> yeah, nicely put, Grendel. And, and Ashley Clark, our pal Ashley from New York. Yeah, he, he writes in to say, wry, poignant, tense and impeccably cast. Uh, it boldly melds and easily transcends the trappings of two 90s genres that were overcooked almost as soon as they began, which are the violent Tarantino-esque thriller and the Cockney gangster gadabout. So that's basically what I wanted to say in more eloquent terms. Right. But Yeah, I mean, that, that is an interesting point, come, arriving in sort of 99, when uh, basically the point at which a lot of this stuff, like... I don't know. I guess the the Cockney gangster gadabout stuff is is maybe where Guy Ritchie and, yeah, and those guys so. come into the mix. But certainly in terms of American cinema, like Tarantino, there were so many uh, imitations of mm-hmm. of his work at that point. And mm-hmm. this, I don't know how much it's like intentionally trying to subvert that or, or reference that. It doesn't necessarily fit into that category in a neat way for me. It kind of is a bit of an outlier to that. Mm. But I think yeah. it's, he's reflecting on other things, totally, maybe yeah. more than other other movies. I like what Ashley said here as well about it. there's an inverted plot re- plot reference to the 1984 stamp starring tr- thriller The Hit. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw that, Manuel. I did. I really I enjoyed love that this film. Movie. It's yeah. beautiful. It's um, Stamp and John Hurt. It's and, everything. And Tim Ross. A and young yeah, Tim Roth. We should do the hit. Yes, because that was slated at the time when it came out. But I, I really enjoyed it. Um, a film with kind of metaphysical ambitions, which I think yeah. did it no good at the box office. Uh, Ashley then goes on to say, "Think of the spooky connections between the characters played by Melissa George here and in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, with which it shares a locality." Who is Melissa George in yeah, this film? Yeah, so Melissa George in this, um, she plays his daughter Jenny, right? Who we only actually see in sort of hazy flashbacky sequences and in photographs so she she doesn't really actually appear in the film beyond that uh, yeah i think that's an amazing observation from from ash um yeah and terence stamp i mean he is his movie i mean he totally owns it and we talk about the the, the quotable lines of dialogue and the monologue and i think what's so great about his performance is just that it could easily be a kind of one note hard man geezer role and he does something very subtly does something with it that just makes it so much more layered and, and and nuanced than that. I think he wears so much of the character's past and and internal conflict just just on his face, just his expressions, the way he he kind of carries himself. It is a wonderful piece of casting. And then you've got um, Peter Fonda as well, of course. Oh, he's so pretty good. terrific in this. Excellent. Hey, what are we going to be doing in next week's film club? Uh, we've had a suggestion in actually from uh, Lynn Raymond. Um, who says, with the passing of Jerry Lewis, how about discussing The King of Comedy? Uh, which is, uh, well, in her, her opinion, Scorsese's best film. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest King of Comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. Jerry Lewis, who passed away this week, a lot of his early um, comedies, which obviously he's so famous for, they're maybe not as easy to watch and get hold of. So the King Comedy is a good shout. I think it's uh, 
one which maybe people aren't as familiar with in the Scorsese oeuvre, definitely one of Lewis's finer later roles. Mm. And De Niro, you've got De Niro in there as well. And De Niro, kind of playing against, both playing against type a little bit. Mm. I recall it as a challenging film, but it was wildly received, I mean, so well received at the time. Yeah, and I think even now it's considered, we did a a, a ranking piece of all Scorsese's films, and I think it was in the top three or four. Yeah. Yeah, definitely one that people point to now as one of his best works. All right, well, that was Lynn Raymond out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. So thanks for that, Lynn. Do let us know your thoughts on that film so we can incorporate them in next week's show by emailing us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or on the Facebook page, Little White Lies, or Twitter, LW Lies. Manuela, anything else you'd like to mention before we shut up shop for another week? Just to give my two cents on The King of Comedy, it is a great film, so please everybody watch it. I think it's probably one of De Niro's most interesting performances because he plays a really unbearable person. So have a great time with that one. Excellent. Adam? Uh, nothing from I'm off to go and rewatch The Limey, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 And Logan Lucky by the sound of it. Yeah. Back All right. to back. Uh, what else are we doing in next week's in terms of uh, next week's show in terms of new releases, Adam? Uh, we've got God's Own Country. Okay. And a film called Patty Cakes. About the rapper. About a rapper. Right. A white female teenage rapper. Cool. All right. Well, listen, listener. Thank you for being with us. We'll be back next midweek. Hopefully you'll be joining us then. In the meantime, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.